friends. Uh, Greg Kogel here. The show is Stand to Reason. I am your host, and uh, thank you for being part of what we're doing today. Um, I uh, I just want to give out some numbers, which I almost never do, um, but we still get callers because most of you who call know the number, but maybe you'd like to call but don't know the number, so let me give it to you. 855-243-9975. That's 855 855- Two four three nine nine seven five. That's the number uh, to call into the studio. Uh, Miss uh, Amy Hall is the uh, person answering the phone, and you can talk with her. And if you're nice to her, which most of you are, then have you ever declined a call, Amy? You have occasion, yeah, not too much, not too much. So, uh, um, so, and she'll take the call if you're outside the U.S. You can dial. Uh, 562-424-8229. That's 562-424-8229. We'd be glad to take your call. Um, I have nothing profound to say to start my program with, and so I'm just going to go to our callers who probably have more profound things to ask about than what I'm thinking right now. So let's to go to Columbus. Uh, I imagine that's Columbus, Columbus, Ohio. Oh, wait a minute. I'm gonna. I made a mistake there. Um, is Scott's next in Oxnard? So Scott's been waiting. Okay, Scott. Glad to have hi, you on Greg. board. Yeah, hi, and thanks for thanks for waiting. Uh, I almost messed up there. Yeah. Okay. Well, good. Well, hopefully you'll have something profound to say here as we unpack this a little bit. Um, by the way, I'm a, a strategic partner. I really oh. appreciated all that STR has uh, meant for me over a couple oh. decades now. Wow. In our, my church is actually not far too up in Camarillo. And right, right. We, I started a series that's kind of a month, every month or two, we do a special workshop. It's after church, we have lunch, we go into a topic that, you usually cannot uh, unpack in a, you know, 30-minute sermon. And the series is called Christ in Culture, and we kind of react to some sort of cultural thing that's out there, and we kind of train how we can communicate back to that and and live as believers in the crazy culture that we're in right now. And we've done a lot of interesting topics. We're coming up in March. I'm doing one on moral relativism. Wow. And I'm excited for that. You know, I first uh, read your moral relativism, uh, feet planted firmly in midair, yeah. you know, quite a few years ago. I guess that was actually uh, like a DVD or, or CD series. I think it was a CD okay. at that time. And then just uh, a few months ago, completed the SPRU course on moral relativism. Oh, good. You do. And, and those are great foundations for some of the things I'm going to be doing. Uh-huh. And my question as I'm preparing for this, I, I was wondering about whether or not to mention briefly about critical theory, uh-huh. um, just because it seems like it, it kind of flows along with moral relativism, but I'm not quite sure in some ways. It doesn't seem to have an objective right or wrong, but just seems to concern itself with power. You know, who's the, who's the oppressors and who are the oppressed? Right. And... and you know, so it's a it's a kind of a different moral project. But I know that you have talked about how 
you know, once there's no objective right and wrong, basically mm-hmm. there's only the dispensing of power left. Who's ever in That's right. control gets to decide what's right or wrong and then press it down onto the rest of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my question then is, is critical theory kind of an offshoot or, or kind of flows parallel alongside more relativism? Well, um, I think it's confused. And uh, the reason it's confused is because, on the one hand, um, it is—well, uh, keep in mind, moral relativism is a subset of a broader, uh, a broader relativistic view of reality. If you, if you do not have truth about reality— so if you're a postmodern, for example, and denies that we can know truth about reality, that there, all there are different narratives, okay, and there is no meta-narrative, there is no big story over everything, well, then there is no big story regarding any subset, and that would be truth regarding morality. So moral relativism is a subset of a broader view of relativism, um, of postmodernism. So uh, okay. a kind of non-realism when it comes to knowledge. We don't know the world the way it really is in itself, okay? <clears throat> so if—and if, uh, it, and it seems like critical theorists—and I'm just reading now a book by Neil Shenvey, which is it's probably—if you just want one book to read on this, maybe this is the best book to read, because it, it breaks down critical theory in a very fair way. Uh, I'm trying to remember the, the title. Amy can tell, you, tell me. It's called Critical Dilemma. The Critical Dilemma. Is that right? Shenvey's book? S-H-E-N-V-I. He has a co-author. I can't remember the name. But I think it's Pat Sawyer with Neil Shenvey, and the book is Critical Dilemma. Now, it's, it's, uh, it's not an easy book, but for you, I don't think it'll be hard. But it will give you a broader base so you have a better understanding. If you're talking about issues of Christ in culture, it's good that you have a, a more basic understanding of, uh, of critical theory. Now, Neil Shenvey also has about a one-hour video on YouTube that you can get that breaks down uh, in a quicker way the what he considers the five main elements of critical theory, which is the social binary and lived experience, also known as standpoint epistemology and uh, and uh, social justice, which is the solution. Okay, so um, if you can get a b- basic understanding, one of the things that he teaches there is that this is a, in a sense, a, a truth is relative. This is, there is no truth kind of thing. It's foundational. However, and this happens all the time with these, with these kinds of characterizations. However, they present their material as if it is an accurate characterization of the way society works. And the first thing is social binary, and you mentioned that, that there is the oppressed and the oppressor. And everything is always organized that way. You can't get away from it. Racism is built in to every social structure and every society. And this is why, in order to defeat racism, you have to destroy the structures in which racism is embedded. But what's—so you have this curious circumstance 
which is really the contradiction of all postmodernism. It's there are no accurate meta narratives, big stories. Everybody's got their own individual and here's story. Here's one I want to give you. Yes, there it is. And here is the meta narrative that explains that. So the postmodern characterization of truth is itself a meta narrative. And so it's contradictory. And uh and this is what they always run into. And if they're going to say there is no truth, then they're characterizing the 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 dynamic between the oppressor and the oppressed also in moral terms. So not only is the dynamic an accurate characterization in their mind of the way the world actually is, so it's a it's an objective truth, but it also has moral component. The oppressors are bad, and the oppressed mm-hmm. are uh, are. Well, I wouldn't say they're necessarily good, but they're but they're the the favored group. You favor them because of their oppressed status. Okay, um, I actually think that critical theory is a little bit complex. It has complexity, and it's very easy to oversimplify and kind of migrate. Uh, like to to uh, to the side of total opposition. Everything that critical theory says bad, and this is one thing that Neil Shenvey warns against, because there are observations that are embedded in so uh, critical theory that have an element of truth to them, and so what we don't want to do is you know throw the baby out with the bathwater and deny obvious truths, because we don't like the whole system. The whole system is kind of corrupted, so we just reject every detail. Shenby does a very good job, in my view, of being balanced. And so he assesses, he gives a clear picture of what critical theory is, then he examines its strengths, and then he examines its weaknesses, which includes an examination of its weaknesses in light of a biblical worldview. He thinks it's a false worldview. And of course, the biblical worldview is true. So, um, but in, in specific, in specific regarding your question, you have this crazy circumstance once again, where people are on the one hand denying truth, objective truth, and on the other hand, providing a way of understanding the world, critical theory, which they think is accurate. It is true, <laughs> and they and compound and the problem. To obey as well, or, or you know, it's got moral imperative. Yes, that's the that compounds it because it's not just true, yeah. but there are moral elements to it, and so you have a moral obligation to oppose the racism that's part of the evil of the oppressing class, and you restore and repair by instituting social justice. And of course, the word justice is a moral term, and so you yeah. can't really be. A critical theorist, it seems to me, consistently without acknowledging um, objective truth and moral truth as a subset of objective truth, because all, both seem to be in play. I should actually uh, talk to Neil Shenvey once. I don't know when I'm going to would get an opportunity to have this discussion, but I I would like to ask him this very question because it just seems so obvious. I know in his book he says that these are these are this is a group that denies objective truth but then what does he make of their characterization in light of this denial what does he make of their characterization of the social binary 
and standpoint epistemology, lived experience, or social justice, for example, or uh, oppression by ideology. These are all p- pieces that are pieces that make up kind of the critical theory uh, structure, as it were. So uh, I'd, I'd be very interested to have this chat with him just to find out, because it just strikes me as such an obvious self-refutation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that answers my question, and I would love to, if you had Neil Shemby on, mm-hmm. I'll, have to, I'll have to check that one out. That'd be yeah, start first with going online and watching the video, because that's, 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 I, I watched the video and took notes, did an outline. So I have a kind of conceptual framework to work with. He changes his language a little bit in the book. So when he talks about lived experience in the video, which means basically the oppressed group is in an has an epistemic advantage. They know what yeah. oppression feels like. They've lived it. So they have a preferential position to talk about what reality is like. And the oppressor doesn't, because he's the oppressor. He's just going to justify his oppression, and so he needs to be silent. And a lot of these discussions that you see in in these cultural circumstances, like uh, when critical theory is part of, or they call it uh, DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, is part of the educational enterprise or part of the corporate enterprise, white folk have to shut up. They don't get to talk, because they don't have anything to, to say. They are not allowed to speak because of this standpoint epistemology, because of lived experience. Yeah. Now, I think he calls that standpoint epistemology in the book, so he's just changed these terms. But the, the basic components are are all in place there, wow. and um, that will help you. So watch the video, then get the book, and it's a hardbound book, And but it's it's... I think it's structured great. I looked at the table of contents, and I've already done my my preview of the book. I've read. I spent four hours kind of going through most of it in a overview look, and and uh, I really like it. And he talks about the Franklin School, and he talks about where this came from philosophically, and then how it's played out in our culture. It gives you the main elements of it. He tells you, hey, the, here are some things that they they've made. They have a good point here regarding these particular <laughs> issues. So, uh, and then he talks about where the, he thinks they go wrong, and again, the biblical analysis. So it's all there. So I would suggest that. And I I want to tip my hat to you as a, you know, faithful stand to reason guy, you're paying it forward, so to speak, with the group that you're working with and helping them to, uh, to be more alert or aware of the kinds of things that are going in a culture that are relevant to the gospel. So good for you. Well, thank you. Got great training from you guys, and a lot of the leadership of the church comes to these real, real faithfully. So it's part of a good training. Oh, that's great, uh, Scott. Can hey, I ask I, you what church is it in Oxnard? It's Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Camarillo. Oh, okay, it's in Camarillo. Uh, is that yeah. what street is? That? Is that in Las Palmas? Our Our Neil, or I think uh, right off the freeway off of Lewis Road there, our Neil. Or something like that. Oh well, I know where Lewis is, right off the freeway. Um, it's kind yeah. of a main, main thoroughfare mm-hmm. there. I didn't know there was a there's a Mexican restaurant right there, but I didn't know there's a there's a, there's a Lutheran church there too. So yeah, good shepherd. Good, good Lutheran church. What what yeah. side are you on the um, Camar? There's the kind of Camarillo Village thing on on like I think it's the western side of the of the freeway, and then there's you know we're, on the mountainside. Is yeah, that where you're on? Your on the, we would be on the. the the eastern side, the, the 
of the freeway, not the ocean side, the other side. Oh, okay, the other side. Yeah, it's hard to tell eastern, yeah. western yeah. mountainside, because everything's at an angle there. You know, the coast is at an angle, and you got the mountains. So, all right. Well, it's great talking to you, and um, and I hope That's those great. suggestions help you out. And I'm going to watch that video tonight. So, Shembi is S-H-E-M-B-I. S-H-E-N-V-I, correct. Yeah, Neil. N. Okay. Hold on just I'll a minute. Aim. Okay, so Amy says if you go to Neil Shenvey's website, if you just Google okay. Neil Shenvey, go to his website, he has links to all of the work that he's done, including the videos that he's done. And that'll probably take you to YouTube where, where he does this presentation that I saw. Right. But uh, he he's really excellent, and I this isn't even his field. His field is like chemistry or something like that. You know, he might have a, like a PhD in chemistry, but for somehow he got involved in this, and he's very good. And his book is very very well done, and uh, I think you can trust him as a source. Okay, good. Thanks for the tip. Okay, appreciate your uh, your call, Scott, and uh, uh, good to hear from. Uh, strategic partner who's paying it forward. And by the way, just so you guys know, I always appreciate when people say thank you for the role you've played in my life, or stand to reason especially. That's great. But the best, the biggest compliment for all of us here is when people pay it forward. Because we are discipleship-oriented. It is our goal to build you to go out, and then to build others. And from the very early on in my Christian life, one of the operative verses for me, and partly because it was so wonderfully uh, modeled for me in the life of Craig Gigler, my 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 first and most intensive discipleship relationship, uh, two and a half years actually. Um, that verse is Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, and it says the things that Paul is talking to Timothy, he says, the things that you have learned from me in the presence of many witnesses. In other words, this isn't like secret information. This is the basic public stuff. These entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So you actually have four generations. So you got Paul, you have Timothy, you have faithful people, who then entrusted to others for generations. And uh, so Craig entrusted to me, pass the baton to me, I pass it to you, and then you pass it to others, and then they pass it to others still. And this is what we're all about. So this is so great about this uh, the prior caller, I think Scott is his name, uh, paying it forward, passing that baton. Good for you. Let's take a break, and we'll come back with more of your calls here on Stand to Reason. Would you like a Stand to Reason speaker to speak at your church or event? Greg, Alan, Tim, John, and I, Robbie Lashua, are available both in person and online. Just email booking at str.org to schedule us today. We can address a wide array of topics, from bioethics, gender issues and science, to theology, philosophy, and how to respond to other worldviews all from a biblical perspective. Whether it's a Sunday sermon, Zoom conference, or YouTube live event, our skilled and engaging speakers can be there, either physically or virtually, with the goal of equipping Christians to effectively influence the culture for Christ. To read our bios and learn more about the topics we cover, visit str.org. 
Then email booking at str.org to schedule Greg, Alan, Tim, John, or me, Robbie, today. As a high school teacher, I always had a red pen close at hand. When I wasn't in front of my students teaching a lesson, you could find me assessing assignments, grading essays, and evaluating exams. The red pen played a crucial role in the educational development of my students. With it, I questioned their assumptions, exposed their errors, and challenged them to think critically. You see, a good teacher doesn't merely tell his students that they're wrong. A good teacher shows his students why they're wrong so they don't make the same mistakes twice. He corrects because he cares. Last year, I was scrolling through social media, and frankly, I was discouraged at all the bad thinking that undergirded much of what I was reading. Then it hit me. What if someone applied the red pen to this flawed thinking? And Red Pen Logic with Mr. B was born. In the last few months, Red Pen Logic has grown in popularity. Through our engaging and shareable educational graphics and videos, we are helping people, especially young people, assess bad thinking by using good thinking. And we have a lot of fun in the process. So here's your homework assignment. Like the Red Pen Logic Facebook page so you don't miss our next graphic. And subscribe at the Red Pen Logic YouTube channel so you don't miss a single video. Class dismissed. I was just thinking of, um, you know, critical theory here, and I, I just want to offer a thought to help organize this with you. Just like relativism is a broad concept, and there is a subset called moral relativism, there is also critical theory as a broad concept, uh, characterized in the way we were just talking about it, social binary, uh, lived experience, also called standpoint epistemology, uh, social justice. But Hegemonic power, okay. That was the fourth one. Hegemonic power, okay. Um, uh, critical race theory is a subset of critical theory. It's taking the concepts of critical theory and applying it to race. But then there's also queer theory. That is critical theory applied to sexuality, particularly homosexuality. And then there's critical theory applied to feminism. And there's critical theory applied... Uh, to a, to ableism, which is when you know, the, this are people with handicap. Uh, they call it ableism instead of disableism because that's a pejorative way of characterizing it. But you see, it's all it's all kind of collected underneath this broader area of critical theory. And one of the things that really surprised me, and actually helped me to understand something that I I just didn't get as I'm watching the news. I'm watching people respond and react, and I'm uh, looking at, uh, like, Antifa, which, by the way, they've kind of settled down a little bit, I think. We haven't heard much about Antifa lately in the news, it seems, but certainly uh, in 2020 and 2021, it was huge because we're, it was in the uh, the aftermath of the George Floyd death. But uh, the thing that surprised me is this, uh, is this, is this uh, oppression by ideology. This is part of the package, oppression by ideology. Now, it used to be oppression, and uh, oppression was something that was physical. So you, you kept people from doing things that they should have been allowed to do. 
so blacks couldn't use certain water fountains or go into certain stores or ride in buses in certain seats, for example, here uh, in the 60s and before that. Okay, that was largely resolved by the civil rights movement of that time. But nevertheless, you had this physical restraint of sorts. You had, uh, they weren't allowed to purchase property or, or whatever. So th- that's the way oppression has characteristically been understood. But with critical theory, um, the concept has been expanded. Now the oppression can just come from ideas. If you hold an idea contrary to the left, this is characterized as oppressive. And, and of course, we we experience that now. We experience uh, people saying, if you think that homosexuality is immoral, then you are an oppressor. Even if you're not doing anything, acting in any way that's untoward with regards to homosexuals, or limiting their liberties in any way, just the fact that you believe this is considered to be oppressive and an act of aggression, which is why, on the one hand, uh, there is a legitimacy in people's mind for silencing hate. Because the expression of hate—now, this is their characterization of it, of course—the expression of hate is an act of violence against a person. So if you if you say you believe homosexuality is wrong, that is an expression of hate, and it's hateful towards gays, and therefore it's an act of violence towards gays. Now, of course, there's no physical action involved at all, but see how things are being turned around, redefined. And if there is an act of violence towards a group, in the sense that there is an ideology that the group itself feels oppressed by, and by the way, that's also important, the determining factor of whether the ideology is oppressive is the way a person feels subjectively about it. You may not have any hostility at all that's motivating your behavior, but if a person feels it's oppressive, then it is oppressive, and you're guilty of oppressing. Now, if you're guilty of oppression, in virtue of the views you hold, and that oppression is understood as violence to a person, then that person or the group defending that person can respond with physical violence as an act of self-defense. And this, when when the change fell in the meter for me regarding this, this is when I began to understand why Antifa, which is anti-fascist, is kind of where the word came from, can act in a fascistic, violent way. So this is violence against hate. Stand up against hate. How? By hating. It's what it amounts to. But it's justified in their minds because it's self-defense in virtue of the ideological 
oppression and violence against others. It's just the idea. That's violent, and therefore we can violently, physically violently respond. We can burn things down, we can take over property, we can block bridges, that kind of thing. Just trying to help you understand how these ideas work. Okay, let's go now to Kevin in Columbus, Ohio. And uh, Kevin, thanks for your patience. Hey, no problem. Great. Outpost Director, Strategic Partner. Oh, great. Thank you. Um, Do you think it's proper, is there a biblically proper way for a private Christian citizen to own a gun? And then if so, what would be a proper reason to use it? Well, I... um, I think I've, I'm getting some feedback here, and I'm not sure. Do you have a, something else on in the background that's allowing me to hear my voice in echo? No, but I'll I'll put myself on mute. Okay. 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 So you can still hear me, right? Oh, I can't hear you though. Yes. When you put a mute. Okay, I see what you I see what you're doing. Thank you. Um, I don't think you need a biblical reason to own a gun any more than you need a biblical reason to ride a bicycle. It doesn't fall into a moral category that needs to be justified biblically, in my view. You can own a gun because you like guns. You can own a gun because you, uh, and so like collectors have all kinds of guns they never even use. They never fire them, but they like owning them, just like people who buy cars and they never drive them, (laughs) but they like the car to possess it. And this is true of lots of collections. You can own a gun because you like shooting it. And so, you know, I have close friends that go out every week. One, for example, every year on his birthday purchases another weapon. And so he's got handguns, and he's got he's got a concealed carry, and he's got uh, AR-15, and he's got all—and then he goes out, and he's got shotguns, and he's very good with skeet and all that other stuff, but he has fun with it. And you can also own a gun for self-protection, because there's nothing wrong with defending yourself especially defending yourself with lethal force when there's a lethal threat. Uh, And I I don't know of any reason, biblically, why that wouldn't be appropriate. Uh, So I I don't have a biblical—I don't require a biblical verse that, that tells me it's okay to have a gun. Um, I mean, if you want to think of a parallel, uh, Jesus— at one time when he sends out his disciples, he says, don't take a sword. But another time, he says, take a sword. Well, a cell sword is a weapon that you wear on your body for doing violence with, if necessary. So that seems to me to be a parallel to, say, a handgun or something like that, or any other weapon that you might use to protect yourself with. So I, I don't know if that answers your question, Kevin, or not. But it, it's, it's, it strikes me that no justification biblically is required. I see, because I, um, you know, you, you see Jesus said, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. And, you know, people fled persecution when it was coming against them rather than standing there and fighting against it. Is okay, what was in my mind. right. Okay, well, l- let me take each in its on its own. Jesus is just offering, when he says, if you live by the sword, you die by the sword, he is... He's not saying yes or no to swords. He's just saying here's the here's here's what you're risking if you do you go into battle with a sword. That's all he's saying. It's like a proverb that says here's the deal. This is the risk. Okay, and uh, 
uh, but he's not. In that particular situation, Peter was using, I think this was on the Passion night when he was betrayed, Peter was using a sword to rescue Jesus when Jesus didn't want to be rescued, and that he's identifying the problem with it. You know, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. But there was another opportunity where he said, okay, bring a sword. Now it's time to pack a sword. They said, here's one. He said, that'll be adequate. Okay, that was another occasion. So in neither case is he, um, in neither case is he prohibiting um, the use of a sword. Okay, um, he's just talking about in the one there's liabilities. In other cases, it it seems appropriate. Paul Paul talks well. He talks about government not bearing the sword for nothing. So there are legal authorities that can use force, and that's legitimate. And that's actually, I think, an implicit affirmation of the legitimacy of capital punishment by authorities that are properly uh, tasked uh, to carry that responsibility. So, uh, but again, the Christians did not protect themselves when they were being persecuted for their faith, okay? That is, they didn't use violence to protect themselves. But there was a number of occasions where Christians did flee circumstances where persecution was imminent. So they weren't looking for a fight, and they didn't use lethal means to oppose the fight, but they sure tried to escape. In fact, Paul did over the wall in Damascus. They let him down in a basket, you know, to get—and also in other places in Macedonia or where Greece or Corinth, maybe Philippi, I can't remember, you know, where his disciples got him out of town and got him somewhere else because it was dangerous for him. So there, there, there's, there's nothing wrong with fleeing persecution, avoiding it, and um, there's also nothing wrong with self-defense that I can see. The circumstances you were describing is when people were not defending themselves, as far as we can tell, under persecution. Now, uh, for their faith. Now, uh, that does raise the question, um, maybe they had no ability to defend themselves. You know, when the Roman centurions come to, to, to arrest you and you're taken away, you're not having any opportunity to defend yourself. You're just taken away and thrown to the lions or wherever, you know, tarred and feathered, crucified, whatever, set on fire, you know, the way Nero did. He didn't feather anybody, but he tarred them and lit them up. So um, I, I don't know if that's the best place to go to get our advice about this. But I, I see no—even if Christians chose not to fight back, I don't see any prohibition from fighting back. And by the way, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer lost his life because he was part of a plot to take the life of Adolf Hitler. So, of course, he's not a biblical person, he's a, but he's a good Christian man, and uh, that that might suggest that, in, certainly it suggests in Bonhoeffer's mind, that there was a, a propriety to fighting back against a despot who was costing the life of many Christians and others. That should, <clears throat> excuse me, that should be stopped. What do you think? Yeah, because all, all these things that are going on with these illegal, I mean, illegal aliens and I don't know if I'm letting my imagination run away with me, but I don't. I live in a pretty safe city now. Columbus is pretty good, but uh, you know, <laughs> well, you know what I mean. I mean, what? what well, if things happens. I want to be prepared. Yeah. Well, uh, I own a gun. Okay. I have two of them. I have two Glocks. If 
I lived in Los Angeles, I would too. Yeah, well, I mean, it's not against the law to own the gun, and uh, you know, I've never obviously had to pull it out, but I'm teaching my daughter. I have only one daughter is interested in learning how to use it, and we're already. Uh, I've already been doing some work with her, and we're going to do more. I, I think it's I think it's a good idea. It's practical, and there's nothing wrong with it as a Christian. And you you but you want to get training. So my wife and I have already had tactical training with a, with a handgun, and uh, we want to get more and get more capable in case we need to use it. Or maybe we just, you know, it's fun to go out shooting. And that also, when you do it properly, it, it also helps you to learn how to use your weapon properly and, and not hurt somebody else. So, sure. Well, thanks a lot for your input. I appreciate it. Yeah. Okay, Kevin. I appreciate your, uh, your call as well. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, let's see. What do I want to do? Okay, let's go to uh, Austin in uh, Fullerton. And Austin, thanks for waiting. Good to have you. Hey, thank you, Greg. Sure. So I have a marriage question. Okay. Um, so I always wanted to marry a girl that was smarter than myself. I believe that, you know, you try to upgrade your life. Um, try to find a girl that's very intelligent. And I did. Um, <laughs> she's really smart. She's really sweet. And uh, she works really hard. But um, lately, um, you know, I mean, for a while, she she kind of has that manager personality. I, and I told her, I've, I've told her in the past, you have a mean manager personality with me sometimes. And recently, um, you know, I've been working. I have uh, been trying to grow my side business as wedding, in wedding photography. I do wedding photography on the side. And I've been running around every single day looking at property because we want to buy our first home. Okay. I want to provide a good life for my, my kid, my oh. wife. Anyway, I brought it up to her again. And I said, you're always kind of um, talking down to me. And you're, you're very harsh with me. You're very strict. And she told me, it's because I think you're dumb. And I, I don't think you're, you're that intelligent. <laughs> so, and it was, kind of, it was kind of deflating to me because, I mean, I'm going to look at, look at a home after this call. Yeah. I've, I, yeah, I've been trying. I've been working really hard lately, and you know, I don't want you to think she's a bad person, but she's she's pretty blunt with me, um, and I've I've never been told that. You know, my mom. You know, your mom always strokes your ego when you're a little kid. Yeah, I was in gifted and talented education. You know, she's like, oh, you're so intelligent. You tested. Yeah. You tested into gate. You're you have high IQ, and then my wife tells me I'm kind of dumb. Anyway, mm. I'm wondering, Greg. Um, we don't have marital problems for society, but I, was like, I don't know how to navigate that. How would you navigate that? How would you navigate that? Yeah, well, uh, okay, let me offer a few thoughts on this. And I'm, I've, I'm, I'm a little bit surprised by the comment, and I'm not sure. Sometimes when wives are angry, they say things they shouldn't say, just like when husbands are angry, they say things they shouldn't say. All right? I don't—it isn't— I don't get the sense that you guys were having an argument, and she just went over the top. Uh, I'm not even sure what motivated the comment, but here's here's an observation. This is a takeaway for everyone listening. All right, let's just say you're dumb. I'm just for the sake of discussion. I'm I don't believe that's true. It's obvious you're expressing yourself very well and clearly, and you've listened to the show. So that speaks well of you in that regard. But let's just say you were dumb. Some people are under average with intelligence. What are they going to do about it? They're not going to do anything about it because nothing can be done. That's them. 
You could have people who are physically unattractive, or they've got they've got uh, other physical anomalies. They have a big nose, or big ears, or no hair, or these are things that are just part of the package. Is what I'm saying. You here's the rule: you never criticize people for something they cannot change. You never criticize people for something they cannot change. And this is especially true in intimate relationships. So even if you are a dumb person, which I don't agree with, from what I've been able to tell from just a few moments with you talking on the air, if that were the case, that's that's part of your package. And so what's the point of criticizing you for something that you have no capability of doing anything about your IQ or whatever. It might, it's like saying, and honey, you have a big nose. There you go, look in the mirror, it's big. Well, maybe she does have a big nose, but why complain about that? She's not going to, what can she do about that? She can't do anything about it. It's part of her package, too. And everybody comes with those kinds of things. Now, there are liabilities that we come with, too, that can be changed. And the best way to change those, and I don't think IQ is one of them, but the best way to change those is is through a, a gracious kind of interaction and respectful, where one is helping the other, because a husband and wife are supposed to be teammates. They're to be working together and seeking ways to build each other up, not cut each other down. Maybe your your wife has twice the IQ that you have. It isn't going to change the fact that you're the head of the household, you're the leader of the family, and if she's smart, she's going to find a way to work with you, and if you're smart, you'll find a way to take advantage in a good way of whatever insights that she have that she excels in that you may not be as strong in, and that's the the way partnerships are supposed to work. Not, well, you're dumb and I'm not. I'm smarter than you. So why would anybody—this is what is a little bit mysterious to me—why would your wife be motivated to say that even if she believed it's true, she's putting herself above you at your expense? This is not good for relationships. Yeah, I, I think um, he was just answering my question. You know, why do you talk down to me? Why do you talk so firmly sometimes as if you're my manager? Yeah. So um, maybe—I'm just wondering—maybe asking the question is not the best way to go about it. I mean, it's strange coming from me because I'm the question guy, right? I always say that. Maybe it'd be better for, for you to make a request. Honey, please don't talk down to me like that. It really hurts my heart when you do that. If you have, you have a contribution to make, that's fine. Tell me what you're thinking about the issue. Give me your feedback. If you have some ideas about the house or about mortgaging or whatever this decision, I'm open to hear what you have to say. But when you talk down to me, it hurts. And it also, yeah. it also, you know, um, I'm trying to think of the right way to say this. The, look, at I, I'm the president of Stand the Reason. That doesn't mean I'm the, the brightest person in our organization. I could have an absolute genius that works for me. But that doesn't mean because that person is way over the top intellectually compared to me, doesn't mean that person can talk down to me. 
They work for me. I'm the boss. I'm the president. You don't act that way. You show respect, even if you could best me in other area in certain areas. And by the same token, wives are supposed to respect their husbands. This is a direct command of Paul's in Rome in uh, Ephesians five. Uh, submit and respect. Now, I want to make an observation about that passage. And by the way, this it seems to me this isn't talked about much, as much as it should be, because there is a different ethos and culture. All right, but what submit means? Submit re- relates to a behavior. Respect relates to an attitude. Okay, let me say it again. Submit relates to the behavior. You just the wives are to submit to their husbands as to Christ. Okay, so that's a pretty that's a pretty big deal. Husbands are the the inch, the leaders of the family. Now that doesn't give us as husbands leave to abuse our responsibility, uh, to lord it over in an inappropriate way. But the word lord is the word that Peter uses to describe Sarah's uh, perspective towards her husband. This is 1 Peter chapter 3, the first six or seven or eight verses, and he's instructing women to be like, the, 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 like Sarah, for example, who called her husband lord. That's a way of showing respect. Okay, so there's the, there is the submit, and then there's not just submitting, doing, you know, ultimately when push comes to shove, following the leadership of the husband, but to do it in a respectful manner. It's the way you do it. And so when a wife is, is speaking the way you just described to her husband, even if she's going along with the what the husband ends up deciding, by by. Uh, by by calling your name, saying what your wife said, is is diminishing you, and it lacks respect. And this is something that she's obliged to do, is to show respect. So I don't know if this is a pattern in your relationship, um, but it, if it is, it needs to be addressed. Um, okay. And I and I, I can't give you any magic way to address it, or just to kind of lay it out like that, and that maybe sure, just talking sure. about, honey, this hurts my heart when you talk to me that way. I'm all for a partnership, but I'm dad. I'm the husband here. I'm the head of our family. I am responsible before God for you and for our 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 kids, and uh, and for our home. That's my job, and I'm happy to do it, and I'm happy to have you as a partner and to help out. But I don't want you to talk down to me like that. It's not right, and it's not good for our marriage. And sometimes just a, a very straightforward, not angry, not vicious, not crabbing but just straightforward, matter of fact, this hurts me, and the behavior's not right. And I don't want you to do that anymore. And okay. see what happens. Hopefully, I don't know, that, that a, a Christian wife, is she a Christian? Yeah, she is. Okay, so there's going to be virtue that we'll, you'll have access to. But um, I look at, I know marriages are not easy, and some are harder than others. Some are easier than others, obviously. But sometimes this dynamic between a husband and wife is strained by lots of different factors. And it may not be just 
and I, I again I don't want to try to um, draw conclusions about what's tr- motivating your wife. I have no idea to say this kind of thing. But there are other dynamics that are in play. But a, a reason, that's the dynamics, is not an excuse. A reason is not an excuse in this situation. There may be other things going on, but that doesn't excuse disrespectful behavior. And I think it's fair to ask for respect, and even even in a sense, ask very strongly, virtually demand, say, this is not right. This is not good, honey. I don't want to have that kind of relationship with you. I want to be built up by you. I want to build you up. I want to find the positives. And by the way, something, whatever, whatever my IQ is, it isn't relevant to my leadership of the family. I'm still the head, according to God. And if whatever it is, I, I can't change that. So why demean something I can't change? And now we're back to the first point that I was making. Okay. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I don't want to admit to her that it hurt me. Kind of a guy thing. Huh. You know, kind of a manly thing. Yes, I understand. But maybe I should. Maybe I, I should try that. Well, this may resonate with her. Okay. And uh, yeah. I, I understand, like, the kind of the macho thing. I can withstand it. But the fact is, it, I know it hurts. And uh, to be candid with her on that regard, this may touch... Um, the, the something in her that motivates her to be more careful. Okay? And yeah. so if you lead with that, that's hard. That hurt. That hurt. That's, you know. Then you don't have to lecture and say a lot about it. You don't seem like a man of many words, you know, inappropriately anyway. You explain yourself clearly and like you've done here. I, I'm a guy of too many words oftentimes. I say too much. And I just have to discipline myself when I face my conflicts in my family of just getting to the point quickly, saying it, and done. And then deal with whatever comes up, but not over-talk it. And maybe that kind of situation would be helpful here, and then just see how it goes. Okay. I appreciate it. Okay, Austin, I I appreciate your call, and, and, you know, be prayed up on this, too. Thanks, Greg. All right. Bye-bye now. Marriages are hard. I I don't know how else to say it. I remember um, meeting with uh, some friends in Hawaii. Actually, it was we, we re- reunited with a couple that were instrumental in bringing my wife and I together. And I had been a bachelor for almost 48 years. In, in fact, I had my 48th birthday on my, on my honeymoon. And my wife also had not been married before, and she was eight years my junior. So she was 39, almost 40. So here we were, two eligible bachelor-bachelorette kind of brought together, a lot of people cheering us on. You know, well, it's great. And it was cool. It was, it was, people were very happy. We had 200 people at our wedding, which is a lot. And we didn't even partake of any of the food because we were greeting people the whole time. We ended up having a private dinner that night, which was great. Um, But a number of years, well, let me just think. It was probably 18 or 19 years later, we were able to have dinner with the couple that was instrumental in us meeting in the first place. And the question then to me was, so 
looking back now, how 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 is married life? You know, how are you doing as a married person or something like that? Now, they weren't really probing about what is the status of your relationship at the moment, but there was a question that was asked uh, of me in particular um, of, that, that was meant to give some reflection. And here's what I said. It took me a long time to know how to answer. But here's what I said. I said, nobody who is not married can know what it's like to be married. I, I, I know you're thinking, no, duh. Yeah, but I, I think it's, it's, it's beyond that. I, 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 you do not—nobody understands. If you've not, never been married, you have expectations, you have hopes, you have dreams, you have desires, you might have concerns or whatever. All of these things are in the abstract. And you have a relationship up to the time you're married, and this, this you know, has its dynamic. But when you get married, it's a different—you enter into a different world. Now, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying it's very different. And you end up facing certain kinds of challenges and issues and a, a life that you never— that you never even thought about before. I, I, I have a friend who said, after he finally got married, he realized every morning that he woke up, his wife was in bed with him. And it was unsettling. It's like, there she was every day. Well, what do you expect when you get married? Of course you're sleeping in the same bed. But for him, it was a huge adjustment, because he'd always been sleeping alone, and now he's sleeping with his wife. Now, this sounds so crazy, because that's like, wow, of course. Uh, I I got married to sleep with my wife, and I just mean to be share the bed with her. There's there's a closeness that you're you know you're just spending the night together. You're right next to each other. That's part of the deal. I'm not talking anything about sensuality here. I'm just talking about companionship and closeness. To me, that was a huge plus. For him, it was a negative, but he never thought about it, and he never realized it would be a concern until he actually experienced it. And so this is just something to keep in mind, and it's a reason that you make promises. And I've talked about this before. How do you repair the past? How do you secure the future? Who can do anything about either? Because we're always in the moment. And the answer is you repair the past with forgiveness, and you secure the future with a promise. And C.S. Lewis has pointed out that the promise is there for when things get tough. You don't promise to hang together as long as it works out. It's easy. It's fun. It feels good, because you're going to hang together without the promise if those conditions persist. The promise is when those conditions do not persist, when it's difficult, when it's hard. This is why you promise to say to have and to hold, to love and to cherish. Those are activities that you do in sickness and in health for better or for worse. So in sickness and in worse, you still have, hold, love, cherish. That's part of the promise. It's not just until death do us part. Okay, we, we're in this, we can't get out. You have to do the things that you promised in addition to until death do us part. And that's what's going to make the the difference in the long run. 
that we are committed to live virtuously regardless of the circumstances. And sometimes it turns out very one-sided. Maybe it's all the wife, or maybe it's all the husband, and, and the other person is just confused and whatever, and one's got to stay in in the saddle, as it were. Stay in play, doing those things persistently, consistently, loving, cherishing, having, and holding. Those are, those are all behaviors. Well, I don't feel like it. So what? That's not relevant to the promise. You do the behaviors, and here's, here's the biblical and the psychological point of view. The feelings follow the behaviors. You do the behaviors, and that's what brings the feelings. Sometimes and sometimes not, but that's the right order. You don't let the feelings drive your behavior. You let the virtue and desire to keep the vow drive the behavior, and the other things take care of themselves. Now, this is why, you know, it says in Revelations, you know, do the things that you did at first. You've lost your first love. Well, there's a sense in which that kind of applies here in marriage as well. Okay? The vows are the solution. I should say, keeping the vows, all of them. That's the solution. Read a great book. It's called Sacred Love. Sacred Marriage. Can't tell you about it now. There's my music. Sacred Marriage. Read it if you're struggling. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Give them heaven, friends. Bye-bye now.